So we, uh, we looked at creation uh, as God intended it. Uh, we talked about him creating out of nothing. And then out of that creation, let there be and there was. In that is, is encapsulated the amazing power of God. Uh, starting with no raw material, starting with nothing but his own word. Everything that exists today is the word of God in a billion different forms. Whatever you see, it doesn't matter whether it's a blade of grass, whether it's a tree, it's a human being, an animal, a plant, everything is the word of God existing in a billion different forms. And, and him, the God of power, uh, spoke everything into being. And he's not the kind of God who speaks things into being, then goes, checks out, and comes back at the consummation of the age. Everything that exists is also sustained by his powerful will, the will of God. So the continuous cycles of life that we see, the seasons, that also is sustained by the power and the will of God. Um, after creation, we saw that's what we were calling, there was differentiation so that the, light, the night is different from the day, uh, so that the ground is different from the waters, and the sky is different from the ground, and so on. It's called differentiation. It's, it's, it's a secondary stage of his creation, so that again, we have variety, we have beauty, and we have diversity. That's the creative power of God. When it came to man, his, um, the epitome of his creation, we also see the creation of Adam, but then we later see a differentiation of the human race. Male and female, he created them. And, and I think uh, in chapter 2, uh, we saw that uh, from, 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 from Adam, uh, he looked at Adam and, and he said, it's not good for him to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him, uh, what we called the Ezer Kenegdo the one who is his contemporary, standing alongside him. And without man's knowledge or even his, his, his uh, um, consulting him, he, got, he caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, removed part of Adam, the rib, closed the place up with flesh. Out of that became the raw material for creating Eve and presenting Eve to the man. He bursts into a rapturous celebration this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of a man. And then, as a logical connector to that creation or that differentiation of male and female, God says, for this reason. What reason? The fact that the woman was created from a man. For this reason. A man will leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So, from one man, she creates Eve, and then Eve is presented to Adam, and then again, Adam and Eve reunite together. And, 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 and we said last week that marriage, by its creational mandate, demands a level of intimacy that is unprecedented. And we say that human... Um, families and communities throughout history have gravitated towards marriage almost by instinct. 
For this reason. Why? Because Eve came from Adam. And when Adam says, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, he is stating a truism. That is a fact. Eve came from him. And there is something in Adam that desires to reconnect back to that which came from him. Eve, as though in recognition of where she came from, there is something in Eve that requires and demands to reconnect back to Adam from where she was taken. So, marriage is not a social construct. It's a creation of fact. And in our DNA is the instinct and the desire to reconnect back to that from which we came. And that's why throughout history, marriage has existed without any particular command, without any community knowing that another community is doing it, we gravitate towards that. So for this reason, and Jesus quoted this uh, later on when being asked about divorce by the Pharisees, for this reason, um, he says, this is how it was in the beginning. A man shall leave his father, his mother, be united to his wife. The two will become one flesh. He adds, therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Why? The image has no authority to separate that which is mandated by God, by creation. And so marriage then receives um, a command and a sanctity from God as the creator. He's saying, this is how you were meant to operate. This is who you are. This is how you mirror me. And this is how you replicate me. And that's why it's only the marriage union that carries the command and the blessing of God to be fruitful. The ability to multiply and replicate other image bearers and thereby attaining his ultimate purpose. And that's why the blessing of children is not a separate command. It is part of the blessing of God who desires to be mirrored in little ones. That's why the greatest command to parents is these things you are to teach to your children. Make sure they know me. Make sure after whose, they know after whose image they are created so that when they are adults, they will mirror me back. And so this should be a whole debate about um, childbearing. Once you are united, Adam is united to Eve and their mandate to bring forth image bearers taught in the ways, in the fear, and in the worship of God so that the creator might be glorified and is pleased as he sees little images of him running around the earth. The man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. So this is pristine creation, the blissful paradise before the fall. And so at this point, there is no knowledge, there is no experience of sin. As we will see, there probably was knowledge of evil, but there was no experience of it, which is different. Um, and so this total bliss, they are both naked they, 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 because um, the idea of nakedness does not register in their mind as something shameful or something requiring hiding. They, they are okay the way they are. They have nothing to hide. So on to chapter 3, that was creation. Now we go to disruption because something will happen 
that will change the state of creation for all time. And everything we read after this speaks into the human experience as we know it today. And we'll see why. The Bible begins by saying that now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Apparently, the serpent was present in Aden. So the fall had happened. In that sense, uh, evil had already come. It was present. Okay? Man did not know it. He had never experienced it. That's why they were naked without shame. But evil was present, as we can see in the, in the garden. Here, it is portrayed in form of a serpent. And the most likely proposition is that Satan had impersonated a serpent and was speaking through it. Okay? Um, again, it was a world of endless possibilities. There was nothing to say, hey, now we think, how come a serpent is speaking to you? Why didn't you think about that? But this wasn't an issue then, you know? Um, because we don't know what other creatures were capable of communication or what power man had been given to be able to communicate with the animals. But here, there's a conversation between Eve and the serpent. The serpent initiates the conversation, and note how the question is coached. It is coached in a negative way. Did God really? You know, that, that is, in, in other words, it's, it's, it's um, phrased in a way as to cause doubt, all right? It, it's a negative proposition. Did God really say you must not eat? Of course he knows that's not what God says, but he propositions it negatively so as to create doubt, okay? And to engage the woman, uh, to entice her into a conversation. You must not eat from any tree in the garden. The woman's reply tells us that there had been good communication between Adam and Eve. Remember, at the time that God gave the command, Eve had not been created. So the command is received by Adam and then faithfully passed down to Eve. Most likely, at the point that they are walking around the garden because she's created by God, she's brought to him, she becomes his wife. And no doubt, because God had already caused the man, I mean, he had told him about the, the, you know, the lessons of you know, the botany and the forestry and agriculture and landscaping. God had planted the trees. So obviously, God must have taken Adam through the knowledge that he needed, both of the environment and the animals, because he knew about every animal. And this is no doubt part of what they spent time um, with Eve talking about. Oh, this was created by God. This is this kind of a tree. This is what it does. Or oh, this is good for fruit. Taste this one, etc. Oh, that, that's a giraffe, you know. It's the tallest among the wild animals, etc., etc. So they had spent time talking about these things. When she replies to the serpent, she says, God did not really say that we, we, we shouldn't eat any tree. He actually says we are free to eat any of the trees in the garden. So she knows. The information has been reliably uh, passed down to her. So she says, um, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, that is factual, but God did say, you must not eat free, fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. Again, that is correct. And you must not touch it or you will die. There's a little problem there. God never said you must not touch it. 
that's an exaggeration. Amejijazia hapo. Okay? And, and, and this is important because, you know, truth should be able to stand on its own merit. It doesn't need exaggeration. It doesn't need emphasis. It's simply the truth. God says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. So the, the way some of us speak about the truth, I swear, you know, that is unnecessary. God says that's from the evil one, actually. That's how he puts it. Why do you need to emphasize that it is true? If it is true, it's true. You don't have to add anything. Truth stands on its own merit. So there was, it was not necessary for Eve to add this. You must not eat any, you must not even touch it. That's not true. Because it brings a prohibition that God had not given. He didn't say you must not touch it. He said, don't eat it, period. This is dangerous because when we exaggerate truth, when we twist it, when we change it, she's now playing in the enemy's camp. The enemy has already twisted the question, did God really say you must not eat? That's not what God says. And we're told do not give the enemy a foothold. And by keeping your statements clean and truthful, the devil has nowhere to hold on to. It's like slippery glass because truth stands on its own. Remember during the temptation, Jesus is in the desert. The enemy comes and says, hey, you are hungry. You're supposed to be the son of God. Why are you starving? Turn these stones into bread. Jesus knows he has power to speak to anything and it becomes because he's the logos. He's the creative word of God. But he doesn't. He seems it is written. Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Truth stands on its own merit. The devil has no comeback. He has to look for another way to test Jesus. Oh, by the way, you know, um, if you are really the son of God, he always twists truth and brings it in an enticing way, almost like a dare, you know, if you're really this, if you're really that. Jesus is like, I have nothing to prove to you. It is written. That's the truth. You know, man shall not live on bread alone. It is written. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And then it says, resist the devil with the plain truth and he will flee from you. The truth is powerful. You stand on it. On this point, Eve is now on slippery ground because she has exaggerated God's truth. The enemy knows he has a foothold. Here is the greatest lie ever told. You will not surely die. You will not surely die. I was thinking about that statement. I said, my goodness, this is... This is just looking at the last week and the number of condolence meetings we have had to attend here and the amount of death that we deal with, there's somebody dying somewhere every single second. You will not surely die. The greatest lie ever told. Because death has, become, has, has come to define humanity in the most painful, consistent, and and. And, and I don't know what way. It's the one thing we can never escape from. And the logical end of life is now death, not eternity, at least at a physical level. And, and, and this, this, on, on this question, the fate of humanity is going to stand or fall. What will you do with the enticement of the enemy, with the proposition of the enemy? Hear the proposition, his value proposition. You will not surely die. 
the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So again, the proposition is this. God is not being that truthful with you. The reason he doesn't want you to eat is because God knows. So there's something that he knows that you don't. So there's more. What he has given you is not enough. And the nature of the enemy is to cause you to focus on what you do not have and forget everything else that you have. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. I doubt that their eyes were closed. They were so open and they only knew good. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So tell me, what's the value proposition there? They were already like God. They were the mirror of God. When God created the male and female, he looked at them and said, very good. They were already like God. Knowing good, did they know good? They knew only good. So the value proposition is, and evil. That's what the devil brings to the table. It was his value proposition. And here's a tragedy. They knew evil at a theoretical level, not at an experiential level. Why? Because we know that God gave them the warning of the tree in the middle of the garden, you will not eat. Because on the day that you eat it, you will surely die. Obviously, though it is not written, the next question Adam must have asked God, what do you mean you will die? What is die? Oh, you will be eternally disconnected from me. You will no longer be able to mirror who I am. You and I, we will not have fellowship. Because at that point, you no longer will represent my image if you eat of that tree. So the only way to continue mirroring me and for us to continue having fellowship and loving each other and enjoying this place, you avoid that tree. It is evil. So they knew about evil. That's how he was able to warn Eve. By the way, Eve, here, it's plug and play. We are good to go. Anything you want, it's all here. God has made everything ready. We will enjoy, have a wonderful time. It's, it's going to be great. But guess what? There's something in there that we must avoid. If we touch it, that's it. It's, we are gone. We are history. And our fellowship breaks. And, you know, they knew it at a theoretical level. Enough to avoid it. But not at an experiential level. So the devil was luring them then to experience it and suffer its consequences. That was his value proposition. Greatest lie ever told. Did she believe it? Tragically, yes. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, again, was there enough food in Eden? God had caused every tree to grow that was good for food for and pleasing to the eye. When she saw the tree was good for food, which was already unpleasing to the eye, that was there, and also desirable for gaining wisdom. So she believed by her experience of evil, she would be wise. 
she um she took some and ate it she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it and, and, and at this moment when this conversation is happening heaven must have stood still creation must have stood still asking what are they gonna do what is the image bearer going to do because a foreign voice has entered into the scene and begun a conversation that is contrary to the creator. So the entire creation is in harmony at this point. Everything is doing what it's supposed to do. Every single thing, whether it's a plant or an animal or a person, they are standing in the position that God intended them, therefore mirroring him and his creativity and bringing glory to him. But at this point, there is tension. What is the ultimate creature, the image bearer, the one who has dominion, who rules on behalf of God? What is he going to do? There's a foreign voice that has come. It is speaking contrary to God. Is it even wildly possible that they might listen to that instead of him? And you can tell. I don't know. I, I wasn't there. I'm not old enough. But I can imagine what happened at the moment that Eve took that fruit and ate it. Half the mirror was broken. Could not longer mirror its creator. Another half was remaining. And he was lured into the trap. She gave him, was he going to eat? He took and he ate. And at that moment, the image shattered into a billion different pieces. No longer able to mirror back its creator. Now, I want to say this. There's probably nothing magical about the tree or the fruit, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It was put there in order to test their obedience to God. All right? So God might as well have put a mountain there and said, of this mountain you will not climb. On the day that you climb it, you will surely die. Why? Because being in fellowship with God is to mirror his qualities. God is love and love equals to obedience. Jesus says, the one who has my commands and obeys them is the one who loves me. So there's a very direct connotation between loving and obedience. And since this man was created perfectly in the image of God, he had all the love of God and he could reciprocate that love, to love God would be equivalent to obeying him. Do not eat. On the day that you eat, you will die. Why? Because you've disobeyed me. You cannot mirror who I am fully. Then begins our current existence as we know it. Every disruption, every distortion, every disorientation, everything that we know here as painful and shameful and desolating and isolating that exists has its genesis on this. So we need to understand what happened here and to know that we are a broken humanity. The mirror was shattered at this point. And our efforts to reflect the glory of our creator are very painful, difficult efforts that come to naught. And until the creator himself can craft a solution, 
that comes and restores the image. The image has no capacity to restore itself. It's a mirror. It's broken. Unless the creator takes it and refabricates it, repurposes it, so that it begins to reflect him again, it's an effort in futility. That's why he says, your acts of righteousness are as filthy rags before me. If I do not dictate, if I do not give you my righteousness, whatever you try to do, it's a mirror trying to put itself together. And it cannot reflect the image of the creator. We don't even know how the creator looks like. He's the one who can tell us, this is who I am. So this is how you should behave if you want to be like me. That's how he sets the rules. And until the creator intervenes and begins an inner work of restoration of the image that was lost and shattered, you and I, all our efforts, they amount to nothing. Here is an example of trying to restore the image for yourself. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? It's a question that persists to this day. And wherever you are, in the process of restoring the image of God, he asks, where are you? In terms of your relationship with me, in terms of your relationship with your neighbor, with your spouse, with your child, where are you? And until God can find you, he can. Or until you want to be found, the restoration process cannot even begin. Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. New vocabulary has entered into the human race. Naked, afraid, and hide. Those never existed. You're only afraid because you're guilty or you have sinned. You are ashamed of being exposed of what you've done. So you run and you hide. It's been the story of humanity since time began. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree from which I commanded you not to eat? Just to back up, when the eyes of both of them were opened in verse 7, and realized they were naked, what did they do? They sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Those are personal efforts to restore the image that was broken, which I would call is an abuse of creation. Now they are taking leaves that were meant to bring glory and honor to God and the garden and beauty and using them for purposes of hiding from the creator. That's not what they were meant for. And we abuse God's creation even today in many different ways. Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree from which I commanded you not to eat? We must understand that these are rhetorical questions because God already knows what they have done. 
What God is actually trying to do is extract a confession from them. Just an acknowledgement. We have rebelled against you. We have opposed to your command. And maybe, just maybe, we are sorry. Will you get that? The man said, the woman you put here, Okay? If you're wondering where the habit of apportioning blame and refusing to take responsibility comes from, we are sons of Adam. I'm just saying. Okay? We are sons of Adam. The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. In other words, God, me, I was here. You even knew, you know, you were there. I was minding my business. You know, I was even naming the animals. In fact, you said I did very well. And then you made me sleep. When I woke up, this woman was here. Now see what she has done. In fact, see what you have done by putting her here with me. A total refusal to take responsibility and a portioning of blame, pointing fingers to others rather than say, I have sinned. Forgive me. I am sorry. God sees he's not getting very far with Adam. Then the Lord said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate it. At least she admits one thing, she was deceived. She swallowed the lie of the enemy and she ate it. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cast are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. So the serpent is in a whole category of its own. Cast above everything, whether wild or domestic. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust. Dust at this point is no longer a symbol of life from which man was created. Now dust becomes a symbol of death. And you will eat dust all the days of your life and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring or your seed and his singular and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. The enmity between the serpent and humanity and for generations is given as a curse. And the prediction of the rectification or the, the uh, reorientation of the image is given here as hope. For all of us. This is part of the gospel being preached way before it ever happened. That there will be an enmity between you and the serpent. You will strike his heel, but he will crush your head. So the defeat of the enemy is already a foregone conclusion. It's going to happen. But there's going to be antagonism in the in-between. Because everything that has happened since the fall until Christ returns is an effort to restore the image of God. To back to where it was. And because God is good, one day we will make our way back to paradise. Revelations 21 and 22 make that very clear. Where we will enter the new Jerusalem and there will be um, the river of life that is flowing. And then on each side of that river will be the tree of life from which man was expelled. So paradise will be restored. But not yet. In the meantime, there's going to be a serious power struggle between us and the elements. Because God said 
to the woman, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. There's enough testimony of this pain. We all know, all right? It comes here. Apparently, child, childbirth was meant to be painless. Wouldn't that be something? You know, with pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. There's an inversion of the social order of relationship between male and female. Before that, they were relating at par. But in this particular one, a particular desire is given to the woman for her husband, in a sense, to seek either identity or comfort in the relationship, which is natural, but the man responding in a negative way so as to dominate the, re the relationship, almost suggesting even though you desire this, it will not give you the comfort that you are looking for. And part of that is supposed to point her back to God, the God against whom she rebelled when she took and ate against his direct command. In other words, it's like, you will desire your husband, that's not where you get your comfort. You almost, in a sense, have to look up to me for that to happen. And, and that becomes an alteration of, 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 of the, of the uh, gender relationship, a power struggle that ensues uh, between that. We'll talk more about what that desire actually means, uh, because even that has some negative connotations to it. So then, that's the punishment for the woman. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife. Okay, the idea is not to say, never listen to your wife, okay? <laughs> In this particular issue, because you listen to, listen to the context, because you listen to your wife, and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. In other words, Adam, I give you a direct command. Then your wife comes and countermands me, and you obey her rather than me. There's a problem there. Cast is a ground because of you. And I say poor ground. Wasn't even consulted, wasn't even involved. Cast is a ground because of you. And this is the intimacy between Adam and Adama. We talked about it. Eh? He was gotten from the ground. So almost the consequences, whatever Adam does, affects Adama. The very creation is affected by Adam because he's the epitome of God's creation. And his rebellion has consequences even on earth, on the ground. Cast is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food. Notice something, some aspects of grace. He's saying you will eat. You will eat several times. So his sustenance is still assured. God is saying, I want you to live on. You've done this, but I will still supply. It will be painful, but I will supply. You will eat of it. Uh, you'll eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. This is the reversal that was never envisioned, was never part of God's plan. 
They returned to the ground. He was supposed to be taken from the ground, the breath of life, and then he continues forever in the presence of God, reflecting an everlasting, immortal God. That was God's plan. But this reversal is the real curse. That because of what you have done, this mirror that I've given you, at one point, will shatter and return back to the dust that it came from. So your life has a shelf life in a sense. There's only a time span that I'll allow you to reflect me poorly because you cannot reflect me wholly for this time. Note something. The serpent is cast, the ground is cast, but humanity is not cast. You note that? God does not cast his image. Right? So, there will be serious consequences, there will be serious difficulties in our life here, but there's a plan. And the creator has set that plan in motion, and that plan, everything between Genesis and Revelations, is restoration of the image of God, trying to bring back this mirror so that in a shadowy way, it begins again to reflect its creator. It will take the creator himself to intervene and institute a plan in which the image can be restored. Note also, even though it was very clear that Eve took the fruit and ate it and then gave to the serpent, she initiated it, she entered into conversation with the, with the serpent, this is never called the sin of Eve. Do you notice that? It's always called the sin of who? The sin of Adam. It's he who received the command from God, do not eat. So God holds Adam responsible for what happened to humanity. And in order to reverse that, God will have to bring another Adam. This is just in case, you know, some of you are theological. You're wondering, why wasn't Jesus a chick? She could have been, all right? But the sin was the sin of Adam. And the one to restore the image must be a second Adam to do what the first Adam failed to do, and that is to mirror God perfectly and to obey every command that God does and finish his work. Then the image will be restored. Amen? God bless you.